Onasu. So there's a, a wonderful kind of symmetry and synergy in these two practices of the ultimate and relative bodhicitta. This will be very short. And that is from terms of the ultimate bodhicitta. And we're certainly going in that direction with all of our shamatha practices, and most explicitly in the practice of shamatha without a sign, of merging the mind with space, which just so smoothly slips right into Dzogchen meditation that in going in that direction, we more and more deeply tap into our inner resources. And as we tap deeply enough, then virtue, kindness, compassion, loving kindness flows quite spontaneously. Something discovered, not cultivated. Right? And so, of course, that flows right out into our cultivation, our practice of Donglen, cultivation or realization of relative bodhicitta. So on the one hand, on the other hand, as we cultivate the practice of Donglen, cultivate the relative bodhicitta, cultivate its primary root, which is great compassion, right? Maha Kuruna. Uh, when we go that deep, arouse such a deep aspiration, then it can't help but it's like dropping a stone into the deepest, deepest realm of the ocean. And the stone goes all the way down. Of course, it's just going to keep on dropping all the way down until finally we can't drop any further. And when we're arousing explicitly that great compassion, that thought, that little stone, that little pebble of great compassion, it drops down. Because as, as we all, I think we all know, there's only one level, there's only one place it belongs. It doesn't belong up there in the psyche of men and women, human beings and so forth. It doesn't belong there. It has to sink below that. It, then it drops down and it can't stop at the substrate consciousness. That's way too, can't, can't support it. It just keeps happening, having to drop down, all the way down to the ground, to what's called the ground awareness, ji rikpa, ground pristine awareness. And then it stops and says, okay, now I'm home. Now I'm home. This is where this little pebble, this little stone of great compassion finds its home. From this perspective, oh yes, this aspiration is real. And so the cultivation of relative bodhicitta, the cultivation of great compassion, by way of the practice of Donglen, is dropping that stone of awareness, of our conscious awareness, our explicit awareness, and dropping it down, letting it settle, 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 until finally it arouses and wakes up. Rikpa. So each one is priming for the other. And so then we say, well, these are not really two then, are they? But it's all part of one continuum, and we're cultivating the flowering on the surface by probing into the depths, and by cultivating the flower on the surface, we're dropping right down to the depths. So it's quite simple. It's quite simple. So let's have one silent practice. We all have to do. Let's have 24 minutes. So this text really does seem to bring its own blessing, because I wasn't really pacing. I was just kind of teaching at the pace that just felt right day to day. And here we are coming to a nice, gentle end today at these final aphorisms of the practices. And so we'll, we'll conclude. The next one is make no mistake. Now, make no mistake means don't get things, don't turn it all around, don't get it upside down, you know? Uh, and so he unpacks this in the commentary. Mistaken forbearance, so kind of wrong, wrong-headed, wrong-headed 
forbearance, and that is not bearing the tribulations, the challenges, the, the, the nyam, the various uh, so issues that come up in your Dharma practice, but only, but only those of mundane concerns. Okay. There are bound to be challenges in both, but if one doesn't bear those of Dharma and just the mundane one, then that's mistaken forbearance, misplaced forbearance. Misplaced would be another good translation. So mistaken desires or misplaced desires, not for spiritual maturation, but mundane goals, obviously. This is really, I mean, it's, it's nothing less than really calling for a radical revolution in one's way of viewing reality, one's priorities, and one's way of life. Um, but then one is the first, oneself is the first person to glean the benefits from bringing such a profound transformation. Then there's mistaken experience, and this is striving not for the experience of hearing, thinking, and meditation, so hearing the teachings, reflecting upon them, and meditating, but striving for experience of outer and inner mundane pleasures, which, again, they're so seductive because we can see them so obviously. Uh, this is one of the, you know, the advantages of technology and science and many bounties of enjoyments and entertainments and so forth that they're so obvious. I mean, you can see them. Wow, that would make me happy. Uh, but when we look at this, like this old yogi in the yogis of Tibet who kind of looks in the camera and said, I can remember all my past lives and I'd probably look human to you. He just doesn't look anything special at all. He looked like a street person. You know? And so the, the blessings, the benefits, the joys of Dharma uh, tend to be much more subtle, you know? not quite so evident. And so it's easy to be enchanted, carried away, by the more obvious pleasures, allures of samsara. Mistaken compassion. This is pitying Dharma practitioners who under, undergo hardships, like poor Genlamurba living under his rock with a mere bag, a bag of flour. Oh, how could he handle that? The poor man. But then feeling no compassion for those who dwell in suffering and the causes of suffering. Um, and it's so easy to, for people dwelling in suffering, but especially the causes of suffering. There are many people, I mean, really a mature practitioner, I remember Gishodaptin coming in this many, many years ago. If you have in front of, front of you a person who's, let's say, a paraplegic, cannot walk, confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life, but living a virtuous life, you know, why not? Uh, and another person right next to him is fit as a fiddle, strong, handsome, like all of that, but living a non-virtuous life, you know, then the latter is much more worthy of compassion than the former. The former is just burning off some old bad karma. The, 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 that is the person in the wheelchair, whereas the person who's devoting himself, you know, tricky, manipulative, exploitative, dishonest, and so forth, then looks really good now, but not can be good. And so that person is much more worthy of compassion. Um, I mean, there's that very short story of two young ladies who are walking by in, in Tibet a thousand years ago. I've told you some of this, maybe, maybe everybody this story, but it's a real short one. But Milarepa, after his enlightenment, after having tremendously deep realization, after all of his austerities, just you know, basking in the glow of unborn, unceasing bliss uh, and the many other benefits of enlightenment. And so there he was. But he still looked scrawny. He looked like this scruffy old man, this old yogi in the yogis of Tibet. But he's probably skinnier. And uh, so there he is, just in a, little, in a little cloth garment, cotton cloth garment, and just sitting by the side of a path. And two young ladies walked by, and they looked at him kind of like scrawny, skinny, yucky old man. And one of them turned to the other and said, oh, I hope we'll never become like him. And Milarepa overheard them and said, don't worry, girls, you won't. 
That's called misplaced compassion. And so, and then mistaken priorities, obviously placing a higher priority on the mundane affairs of this life instead of on spiritual practice. And then finally, mistaken satisfaction, not rejoicing in the virtues of sentient beings, Buddhas, other enlightened beings, but rejoicing in the misfortunes of your enemies and those who you despise. So schadenfreude. So quite clear. So don't, don't get things wrong. Don't turn them around. Don't get it wrong. The next one, do not be erratic. Uh, this is in, in terms of just Tibetan culture. I've lived in that culture for quite a number of years. And just culturally speaking, now not so much just pure dharma, I mean straight Buddha dharma, but as a culture, um, when t in terms of Tibetan relationship with each other, one of the qualities that they really value very, very highly is in Tibetan it's called tembo, meaning reliable, firm, trustworthy, stable, person you really count on in um, good times, bad times, and so forth. That quality, and obviously it can be in the wrong context. If you have a, a gang of bandits, you know, very non-virtuous, but within the gang of bandits, the bandit who's really reliable, you know, the other, his other fellow bandits can really count on him, oh, that's considered a really good bandit, you know? So it's not necessarily virtuous, but this is what I'm saying, it's just kind of a cultural thing, that whether you're a bandit, whether you're simply a businessman, or whether you're a monk living in a monastery, or a nun, uh, or a yogini, uh, they really generically count this as very, very, a very important virtue, and then the opposite of that, they say, well, okay, those kind of people can't rely on them. Whatever virtue, other virtue they may have, uh, if they're flaky, unreliable, undependable, or erratic, then, okay, well, too bad. And so here it is. I mean, this is core Buddha Dharma, but very much embedded in this culture as well. And so what, it, what does it mean here? I think you've already figured it out. Occasionally practicing the mind, mind training, but then losing faith and, and just engaging in recitations. So sometimes really going for the core. And we all, we've all seen the core now. But then kind of losing faith, getting, losing interest, getting, losing inspiration, and can, this, is gonna have to have, this can have so much to do with the people you're hanging out with. If you're getting no support, but they're all kind of, you know, give it, follow this blade, follow this blade in all different directions, you know, uh, then that can really diffuse kind of the inspiration, the commitment to practice. And so one may back up and just go to the outer shell of practice. And it's so easy to do. It happens in a lot of Dharma centers where people are coming together and the primary practice is just chanting together, reciting, reciting pujas, sadhanas, and so forth. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be very meaningful but it can also be very meaningless. Shantideva says, so again, we're going to get a bit of Shantideva, but it was in his chapter, I think it's the, I think it's the meditation chapter, uh, whereas he said, if you are doing these oral recitations, which are very common throughout Buddhism, in Zen, in traditional Zen context, a lot of chanting, Heart Sutra and so forth, Theravada, I've lived in Sri Lanka, a lots and lots of chanting, sometimes goes on all night, it can be quite beautiful, Tibetan, it's all schools, all schools, lots of chanting, a lot of liturgy, a lot of recitations, lots and lots and lots. I was in a monastery. We did it a lot. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be very virtuous. But it can also simply be an outer shell. And I've seen that too. And I participated in it too. Just empty, kind of monkey see, monkey do, just kind of parroting the words while the mind is just wandering all over the place. And Shantideva says when you engage in such oral recitations and your mind is wandering, simply off, you know, rumination, disconnected from the practice. He said, it's meaningless. And so it's, in a way, it's not really explicitly dishonest, but it's kind of dishonest. Because people from outside said, oh, look, they're chanting prayers, they're doing their devotions and so forth. No, they're not. No, they're not. I mean, they're just going fee five fo from fiddly-dee-dee. I may as well be that, because the mind is just off not practicing dharma at all. So where's the dharma? In the tongue? So that's called giving lip service to dharma. Katsam, just mere mouth. 
mere mouth. And so that's definitely a downgrade of your practice if it just winds up being just recitations. So being erratic is kind of like downgrading your practice to that or focusing on this life alone, engaging in non-virtue, succumbing to mental afflictions, and then again becoming concerned about the hereafter and practicing dharma. So this, I've heard this many, many times. Oh, several years ago I was really practicing dharma, but then you know, I kind of lost interest. I became really busy with other stuff, had to get my career together. But now I'm kind of interested in dharma again, but, you know, but I've met this girl and she's really nice. So, but I'll get back to you soon, I'm sure. You know. You know, in and out, in and out, in and out. Well, you know, and that's not going to work. Practice, next one, practice with total conviction. A very important point, Shantideva makes this same point. Uh, I don't remember which chapter, probably the fourth or the fifth, where he says, before you embark, it's kind of a generic, good, really good advice, before you embark on any type of an endeavor, especially kind of a major one, getting a college education, pursuing a career, uh, going on some major endeavor, uh, Shantideva's advice was, uh, check it out carefully. Really look into it very carefully. If this is going to be occupying a significant part of your life, Check it out really carefully. Is it something really worth doing? As well as you can. And then having done so, then make a firm convic conviction and carry it through to the end. That's what he says. Right? Uh, and he said, if you don't do that, if you, if you don't make sufficient checking up at the beginning, and you just kind of jump into it, and then after a while, uh, you kind of fizzle out. You kind of go, uh, maybe not worth it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe not. And then you fizzle out. Is that that'll create a certain pattern. Do it twice, becomes a habit. Do it three times, becomes a pretty deep habit. And then that can really plague you for a wide variety of activities, other activities. And so, particularly in Dharma, uh, practice with total conviction. So he says, check out the practice first. See whether or not it is beneficial, if it seems truly authentic. You've heard me use that word many times. And then if, having checked it out with all of your intelligence, your imagination, your memory, good sense, then... Once you've deemed it authentic and beneficial, then totally commit yourself to it. So, very good advice. Very good advice. And, and then I remember this aphorism. When I first learned it, it really clicked. If something is not worth doing, it's not worth doing well. I find that very useful. And then this, this very good one. It's so, so typical of Buddha Dharma as a whole. Free yourself. Achieve liberation by means of investigation and analysis. So investigation, these are two very specific words. In fact, these are two of the, the, the uh, jhana factors. It's called vitarka and vichara in Sanskrit. Vitarka is the, the more coarse investigation, kind of checking something out. And then as you check it out, I would say there's a kind of a sequence here. If you check it out, you kind of look it over, you examine it, and it seems authentic, maybe this is really worth doing. And this could be for all kinds of things, like investing in a stock or all kinds of things that we invest our money, our time, our effort. But first of all, there's this vitarka, and that's kind of a course of investigation, checking it out, kind of the first, the first wave of applying your intelligence and, and checking something out. And then if it withstands that scrutiny, if it looks good, I, you know, I checked it out, looks good. Then you go back a second time, and then it's vichara. And vichara is a careful analysis, then really probing in, going all the way. And those are, those are two of the five, of the five jhana factors. Okay, they're sometimes called applied thought and sustained thought. But that's what it is. And this is a factor. These, among those five jhana factors, those are the ones that really come into their strength when you achieve shamatha. You know, five jhana factors. They're there when you achieve access to the first jhana. But of course, we have those faculties, whether or not we practice shamatha. 
But Shamatha really hones them to a, very, to a very high degree. So he's saying, use these faculties you already have. If you've honed them from your Shamatha, then all the better. And of course, just practicing, uh, using your intelligence, practicing, utilizing your faculties of introspection and analysis also refines them, makes them sharper, more potent. And this is really crucial. The, I would have to say from my perspective, the Buddha Dharma is such, uh, to say it's a smart Dharma is one of the understatements of the, of the eon, but it really is a very smart Dharma. You know? uh, it calls for all the intelligence we can muster. Uh, we shouldn't give it any less than our best shot of just sheer intelligence, you know, and taking it seriously, investigating it, probing it. The general principle in Buddhism is something, if some assertion is true, if some hypothesis is true, the more deeply you investigate it, with investigation and analysis, the more deeply you probe with all of the intelligence you can possibly muster, the truer it will appear. And if something is false, whether it's another person who's deceiving you, a false statement, hypothesis, evidence that is actually not really compelling evidence, if something is false, the more carefully you investigate it, the falser it will appear. Right? So a general principle. And you say, okay, take that principle, apply it to the Buddha Dharma. Give it your best shot. Uh, it deserves it giving it any, anything less. This is why I, I kind of I get a little bit perturbed when I see you know, people kind of just applying blind faith to Buddha Dharma. You can. I mean, it's not, it's not unethical. But it's like if, if, if you have, you know, if you, if you say, here, I'd like to give you a piece of gold. I mean, it's solid. It's 100% solid gold. Uh, please, I I'd like to give you this. It's something of great value. And you say, oh, thanks. And you don't even look at it. You don't even know whether it's false gold, whether it's mica, whether it's gold-plated. You say, oh, thanks a lot. I, 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 be, I believe you. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Like that. You, know, you might want to check out that I actually gave you something of immense value. Uh, it's worth checking out. If you test it, you will really see it's solid gold. Uh, and not just treat it like, you know, like whatever. So Buddha Dhamma deserves more than blind faith. And it was never encouraged by the Buddha, by the Buddha himself. So in this regard, I did, I did insert something just this afternoon because I learned it a long time ago, probably about 40 years ago, and it's, it's stuck with me ever since. Uh, and I remember part of it in Tibetan, Zorne Loden Durnyerwe. It highlights, this is from Aryadeva, this is 2,000 years old, from the principal disciple of Nagarjuna, the great Aryadeva, in his text, The 400 Stanzas. And there he, uh, he specified three qualities. That is, I mentioned a day or two ago about the the qualifications of a, you know, a fully qualified, uh, competent uh, teacher of, Sh of Shravakayana. You know, I mentioned that. And then I mentioned there were ten qualities for a fully qualified Mahayana teacher. It comes in the Lamrim from the Sutra Alankara. Right? And I have memorized that one, but no, no, no need to recite it. And then when you go into Vajrayana, remember there are a lot more quali qualifications. Well, it's the, but in testing, in investigating, you know, who shall be, if one's looking for a spiritual mentor, to really guide you on your path, and not simply give you a little bit of good advice to get over a bumpy spot in your life. Uh, then one looks for the quali qual qualities of the teacher to see whether the person is really competent, qualified, and capable of guiding you as an individual. And that's where personal chemistry comes in. But it's, that's not all there is to it. That is, as one approaches such a relationship or approaches a tradition like the Buddha Dhamma, it's also very important to see whether oneself is a qualified student or trainee, disciple because not everybody is. And so in this regard, Aryadeva highlights just three qualities. So at least we don't have 10, 20, 30, and 40 like that. Uh, but just for entry level, are you a suitable, are you a suitable vessel? That's, that, that's how it's phrased. 
Are you a suitable vessel? Or, frankly, to put it really blunt, are you worth the, worth the teacher's time? That's really what it boils down to. Are you worth the teacher's time? Because anybody who is a teacher should be a practitioner. And if you're a practitioner, you regard your time as extremely valuable. Because you know what you could be doing with it. So if you're not doing that, if you're not sitting on your own cushion, if you're not purifying, transforming your own mind, then you want to have a really good reason. And there are really good reasons. But there are also pretty poor reasons. And wasting your time with people who are not suitable vessels is one of those reasons that's not so good. And so Aryadeva lays it out very straightforwardly. He says, It is said that one who is unbiased, unbiased, discerning and, and diligent, is a vessel for listening to the teachings. Such a person is a suitable vessel for pouring the teachings into the person's heart and mind. And the first one, zurne. Zurne, is, zurne means a person who is unbiased. It's a good translation. But it's, yeah, it's just that not already prone to prejudice, and then most specifically, not clinging onto one's own opinions as being beyond reproach, beyond criticism, not needing to be reassessed or even reflected upon. No, I, I already have my opinions, and you just said something that bumped into, conflicted with one of my opinions, and therefore you must be wrong, because you know, my opinions are right. Like that. Any kind of dogmatism, any type of, of being opinionated, clinging to one's own views and so forth, without being willing to reassess them, um, it's kind of a waste of time. Because if you already think you have the right answers, then you know, what are you coming to me for? Or there's a lovely Zen. I don't know many Zen stories, but here's one really nice one, really simple too. So a, a student comes to the Zen teacher, and they're sitting down, and the Zen, the Zen master is pouring some tea. And he first pours the tea into the, in the, into the prospective student's cup, because he's coming asking for teachings from the Zen master. And the Zen master is pouring the tea. You know the story? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it must be one of the most famous because even I know it. And so the Zen master, the Zen master is pouring the tea, and he fills it up, and then he keeps on pouring and pouring, and it's spilling all over the place. Of course, you know, absent-minded Zen master. And this prospective student said, "Wait, what? You, 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 it's, it's already full." And the Zen master said, "Yeah, I know. So are you." <laughs> and so enjoy your tea, and have a nice day. Or when Geshe Rapten, this is a true story, I know. I think I might have told this story. But when Geshe Rapten, this was way back, 1975, shortly after he arrived in Switzerland. And I think I must have been translating for him. And somebody came to him and said, uh, some Western, Western guy, and he said, oh, hello, Geshe, I've heard about you. Uh, I, I wanted to seek you out because um, I've already achieved Sambhogakaya. So I'm a Buddha. That's what he's saying. My, and a rarefied Buddha, not, not an ordinary Namanakaya Buddha. I'm, you know, Sambhogakaya. And um, so I'm of Sambhogakaya, but I don't really experience much compassion, and I wonder if you can help me. Okay. And Geshe Rapten says, sure. Yeah. Uh, head outside and, and take a right. That was it. <laughs> That's my help. Head out and take a right. Yeah. If you really want to, you can take a left. But most importantly, head outside. Because yeah. there's really nothing to say. If you really think that, I have nothing to say. Because you're brimming full of you know, nonsense. So the first one's unbiased. Without that, it's kind of a waste of time. The second one's discerning, l'audin, discerning, intelligent. And that is finally so important. If we choose a certain teacher, what are we taking refuge in when we choose this teacher versus that teacher? 
or we decide to choose a teacher versus not choosing a teacher. We always have that freedom. Nobody's telling you you have to have a lama or a guru. But if we decide, yes, I want to have a teacher, and among the many possibilities, I, want, I, I choose this teacher, who are we taking refuge in? Or among spiritual traditions. If, like, if you'd like to choose a spiritual tradition, that's your choice, you didn't have to. Among wisdom traditions or spiritual traditions, which? There's Buddha Dharma, there's Christianity, Taoism, and so forth. Which one? You choose. Who are you taking refuge in? Right. And then different schools, Nyingma, Kagyu, and so forth. You choose. Who are you taking refuge in? Well, it always comes back to your own discerning intelligence. Your intuition, but it's your own intelligence. You chose to follow one versus not. This teacher versus that. This tradition versus that. This order or this school versus that. But it always comes back to, you made the decision. Unless you're just born into it, and you say, I'm, I'm this because that's the family I was born into, in which case you just kind of slipped into it. May turn out well, maybe not. But if you're, you know, like myself, you very deliberately chose, 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 nobody chose any of these things for me, then what you're relying upon all along is your own intelligence. Not just that. There's intuition, there's other factors, but intelligence is a pretty important one. And so this point here is be discerning. Uh, see what you wish. What, what is your longing? Are you simply trying to get over some stress or get over a bad breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend? Feeling just a bit, a bit depressed because things, you know, hedonically have turned out bad recently? Uh, you know, what is it you wish? And if your motivation is really quite authentic within the Buddha Dharma, then it goes beyond the hedonic by definition. If it's hedonic, it's just not Dharma. Right? That's it. If it's hedonic, it's not dharma. It doesn't mean it's bad, it's just not dharma. And you don't really need dharma for the hedonic. You can get that. And it's for sale all over the world. People will give you advice, they'll give you massages, they'll give you financial advice, they'll give you all kinds of stuff. It's all there. We don't need Buddha dharma to improve our hedonic well-being. When it can help, that's fine. Nothing wrong with taking, you know, cherry-picking from Buddha dharma here and there to overcome anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and physical disorders and high blood pressure and so forth. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not dharma, right? Nothing wrong with it, but it's not but dharma. Dharma is about finding genuine happiness. And when we go deeper, sowing the seeds for not only good you know, well-being, genuine well-being in this lifetime, but in future lifetimes, go deeper, it's for finding liberation, go deeper, it's for finding perfect awakening, and then we're deeply into the issue of path. And so when seeking a teacher, when seeking a teaching, then apply all your discernment so that you really, you're honing it and you're recognizing, I listen to this person and I see it's good advice, but it's not dharma. I listen to that teacher, it was, it was dharma, but it wasn't a path. I listen to that person and whatever. And, and that one, that was dharma. And not only was it dharma, but that person was really leading, giving guidance for people to follow a path. And so, what do you want? And then use your discerning intelligence to see that what you want, that the teacher and teachings you're seeking out, really are suitable, capable of leading, to what you, leading you to what you desire. So the first one, unbiased, straightforward, discerning, straightforward. The third one is diligent. But diligent doesn't really capture it, and I can't think of a better word that does. The Tibetan word is dunyerwa, dundunyerwa. And dundunyerwa uh, has a nice... Diligent just strikes me as like sheer grit. I mean, okay, try harder. Diligent, diligent. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not really the, the taste of this term. Dundunyerwa. Chula dundunyerwa means the aspiration to put into practice. Okay, that's diligent. But no, it's more than that. When I'm 
paying my taxes, I'm diligent. I want to make sure I do everything right. But it's, I don't really want to. <laughs> I just don't want to be punished by the government. I'll pay my taxes, be an honest, good citizen, but not something I do. Oh, I'm so looking forward to tax season so I can you know, fill out those tax forms. And I really should work on that. You know? I, I will. I'll work on that. But I haven't really mastered that quite yet. You know? But aspiration, when you hear the teachings, that you really, it's not just for intellectual curiosity, intellectual satisfaction, to uh, add to your store of knowledge, but you're hearing all of that in order to put into practice. Like a person who's suffering from illnesses, listening to the advice of the doctor for diet, for behavior, and so forth, how to take the medication, and listening with avid interest, hanging on every word, all with the intention of, I want to understand this, I want to remember this, so I can implement it and get the benefit. So that's diligence, aspiration, but the aspiration to put into practice. And if students don't have that, then again, in any of these, if the student, if you're giving wonderful teachings and doing your very best to transmit them, I, I, I can say that of myself. The teachings, if I look at the seven-point mind training, I would say they're wonderful teachings. It has nothing to do with me. They're wonderful teachings. And what I've tried to do for the last eight weeks, pass them on as clearly as I can. That's all. Right? And so, but if students listening to teachings have no real interest in implementing them, then all my interest in teaching vanishes. I mean, in instantaneously. Now, that's not happened once with respect to any of you. So no qualms there. I've been, this has been enormously gratifying for me for these last eight weeks. So happy. If I, die, if I die, die at the end of this retreat, say, wow, way to go. Your last eight weeks was really good. You know, I screwed up at other times. But last eight weeks, not too bad. You know, so I'll try to live longer than beyond Sunday. But if, but if a Sunday is the last day, you know, you can be sad if you feel like it, but throw a celebration. You know, way to go, dude. Checked out pretty well those last eight weeks. It's good and important to have your closing days, weeks, months, and so forth. Be as in alignment with Donna as much as possible. So those are the three qualities. Such a person is a vessel for listening to the teachings. Now, of course, I come from a scientific background. And so if you're going to, if you're applying to graduate school or just undergraduate, and you'd like, and you'd like to get a career in science, well, and you're going to be learning new aspects of science, maybe even cutting-edge science. Nobody knew just a couple of years ago. Uh, maybe you're studying under a, maybe a Nobel laureate, like, you know, a very, very fine, very accomplished scientist. Are you worth the, the time of the scientist? Well, if you're prejudiced, if you're coming in a whole bunch of preconceptions, not really willing to listen, not willing to have your own assumptions challenged, like so many physicists at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, so embedded, so entrenched in many assumptions of 19th century physics, you know, absolute space, time, matter, and so forth, uh, and then you have these brilliant ones cropping up, Einstein and Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, and the list goes on and on, these incredible whole generation. Uh, if one is listening, if one wishes to learn from these people, if, those, if these pe people who are entrenched in, how do you say, taught 19th century physics, if they're not willing to reassess their assumptions, there's just no reason for these brilliant you know, pioneers of quantum mechanics and relativity to spend time with them. If you insist that you know, the old view of the 19th century, that's true, then I can't help you. So you might as well just be happy there. I wish you well, but I'm not going to spend my time. This is taking really deep skepticism about things that haven't been questioned in the history of Western science, and now we're questioning them for the first time. If you're not willing to question, that's okay, no problem. But no, I will not teach you. Right? It's the same. 
And then likewise, if you're not willing to give me your full intelligence, quantum mechanics isn't easy to understand. People don't really fathom some of the core issues in it to this day. Relativity theory, not that difficult. General relativity, very difficult. If you don't give it your full intelligence, you're not going to get it, right? And so it deserves your full intelligence. And then finally, if you're going to be a physicist, if you're not interested in practicing it, whether it's theoretical physics or experimental physics, if you're just here to accumulate more knowledge, what do you take my time for? Read books, watch television. You know. So really, I find the same three, quality, same three qualities. You should be open-minded, willing to assess, challenge, ask of your own assumptions you've never really seen corroborated, be as intelligent as you possibly can, and wish to put every theory, to, every theory that comes your way to the test of experience. So this truly is, at its best, it is profoundly a science of the mind, as the, as the Dalai Lama so often stated. So that's a little dip into... Uh, and the final point, that's Aryadeva, but there's a follow-up. The good teachers of the, the good qualities of the teacher do not appear otherwise, nor do those of fellow listeners. Not very transparent, but there's a translation. And that is, if you bring to the mix, there's a, there's a teacher, there are your fellow students, and there you are. And if you're bringing to that context, this learning context, these three qualities of being open-minded, that is, without prejudice, intelligent, and having a real passion to put the teachings into practice. If this is what you're bringing to it, then if the teacher brings those same qualities, the teacher is also open-minded and intelligent and shows a great passion for putting into the practice. And your fellow students, the same. You'll recognize that. You'll see that in the teacher. It will be obvious. And you'll see that in your fellow students. And so there'll be a cause of rejoicing. Wow, we're, we're all of a family here. We're all on the same ship. We're all going in the same direction. Whereas if you don't have those, if you don't have any one of those three, you very likely won't see it. You will not see it in the teacher. You'll see prejudice in the teacher. Oh, this teacher, this teacher is so rigid. This teacher is fundamentalist. This teacher is so opinionated. And oh, my, this student, their opinion, that, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to be painting the pictures of the teacher and your fellow students from your own palette. And you'll not even know you're doing it. And you'll not be able to see the qualities they have. You can't see qualities in other people that you don't have yourself. Which means you don't look at them and see a black hole, kind of like, oh, I don't see any qualities in you. No, you'll see reflections of your own defects. That could be a problem. So this is enormously important. So now coming right back, investigate which mental affliction is strongest in your mind stream and forcefully counteract it with appropriate remedies. That's a very helpful, very practical point. I've heard it many times. And that is, all of, we have our own unique dispositions. Do we, are, are all of us ordinary sentient beings? Or do we, are we vulnerable to, all, vulnerable to all mental afflictions? The answer is yes. But some, if we look among the five, the five poisons, for example, delusion, stupidity, and then craving, attachment, greed, hostility, aggression, anger, hatred, envy, jealousy, and then pride, arrogance, narcissism. There's a nice short, short list. Um, if we just look into ourselves and say, okay, any of those kind of ring a louder bell than others? We'll probably find, yeah. And then we'll choose. We'll say, okay, that one or those two. Probably not all of them equally. Probably not. Could be. Not probably not. In which case, you find the one that's really the most prominent. Uh, public enemy number one, which is then most likely the one that torments you, afflicts you the most frequently and the, most strong, and the strongest. And then, just like the FBI, the FBI most wanted, they would most like to get, get that guy, take him off the streets. You know, it doesn't do much damage to society. This is your most wanted to eliminate. You know? And then, 
say, okay. So let's say it's anger. So you call up anger, put anger on the board and say, okay, you. Look at me. Look into my eyes. You see? Your days are numbered. I'm after you. And I'm going to get stronger. You're going to get weaker. Count your days. You're on your way out. Be a bit, have an attitude. Have an attitude. Never quail. Don't show them your weak side. They'll take advantage of it. Investigate the object's independence upon which that affliction arises. Well, a nice short word for that is trigger. What's a trigger? If it's anger, what pisses you off? What are your buttons for anger, resentment, indignation, self-righteousness, and so forth? Uh, so what are the buttons? What are the triggers? Internally, externally, recognize them. Prepare yourself. And then, with the remedy, see if you can decrease that affliction or eliminate it altogether. So there it is. Good. And then finally, don the armor against that affliction with a with with resolve never to be overwhelmed by it again. So this is where the semshut comes in. Don the armor that, you know, this one is not going to get me again. To the best of my ability, when it, when it comes up, I'm going to recognize it quickly and I'm going to defend myself. Okay? So that's free yourself by investigation analysis. It's really the smarts of Buddhism. There's a lot of heart, there's devotion, there's faith and so forth. And all of these are compatible. They fit together. As we saw, intelligence and faith. There's intelligence. We've had a lot of emphasis on the faith too. Completely compatible. And they are in sciences that we're here. Clearly somewhat different. Uh, this has a lot more heart than science has in general. Uh, but they're both important. Moving on, do not try to make an impression. So, that's pretty clear, straightforward. On the, on the basis of your kindness to others, don't advertise it. Your practice, you don't need to trumpet your knowledge, you don't need to show off. Your discipline, don't need to show off. Or your great, associate, your great associates, you know, the people you hang out with, and trying again to call attention to yourself that you're something special. Uh, it, just, it, it just compounds the problem of self-grasping. You know, it's afflictive. It's not that it's just kind of disagreeable, but it actually is taking you in the opposite direction. Otherwise, your practice will not counteract your affl afflictions, but in fact, the people you're hanging out with, the kind of attitude you develop, the sense of self-importance, wanting to impress other people, for their admiration, their wealth, and so forth and so on. Uh, it's just going to enhance your mental afflictions. Which then, what was the point? There's an aphorism here from Dom Dumba, the great disciple of Atisha. Do not place great hopes in people. Pray to the divine. So... It's looking, just like with the guru, you're, you're not, you're, your attention doesn't stop at the personality. Stop at that person with that person's limitations, age, sex, gender, and all that kind of stuff. Looking right through, this person's an emissary of the Buddha, etc. We've been there. And likewise, from a very deeply spiritual perspective, it's a matter really of, of faith, of trust, of prayer, of aspiration, that it's, um, you know, it doesn't stop with putting all your hopes on one person or one institution, locking in, oh, I hope this happens, as if that's the real target. These people, situations, opportunities, they come and go, but the continuity, the depth, the robustness of one's practice means you're looking to a deeper level. So let your primary prayer be for the sake of your spiritual practice and maturation and not this outcome, that outcome, I hope this happens, that happens, and so forth. So that's pretty straightforward. Moving on, do not be bound by distemper. Sounds like a dog with rabies. 
when others physically harm you, abuse you, do not retaliate verbally, do not foster resentment, for that indicates that your practice has not been counteracting self-centeredness. Pretty straightforward. That's straightforward. Do not be temperamental. That's similar to be not, not being erratic. But the commentary says, flaring up at any little adversity is a source of irritation for your companions and damages your own health. Well, that's true. Sociologically true and physiologically true. So it's one of the, again, one of the clear litmus tests or litmus test or criterion of, of practitioners who have matured in practice is that they're not, um, they're not easily perturbed. They don't get upset easily. Take things in stride. Take things in stride. That's what he's getting at there. Very straightforward. Oh, yeah. And then do a final one. Do not yearn for gratitude. Okay? In other words, do not expect others to reward you by helping you, expressing their thanks to you, and so on. Um, it's generosity with no strings attached. I think that's also totally clear. So just a few final comments, and that is, uh, in terms of summary, because that's it. Those are the, all the aphorisms. And this is from, again, commentaries as they're summing up, kind of concluding comments, and that this, this practice of the two bodhicittas for a lifetime, during meditation sessions and following them, calms all beings. That is not only beneficial to your own heart and mind, your whole way of life, your sense of well-being, it calms those around you. And I've had the great good fortune to be in the presence of quite a number of very mature, spiritually realized beings. And, of course, this is simply true. I mean, just by being in the presence of such individuals. It tends to bring a certain calm, a quiet, serenity, a sense of well-being to the mind. It's almost like they create a kind of energy, they may actually do, create an energy field around them. Uh, I know that when, after His Holiness taught in uh, Switzerland, I interpreted for him at our monastery in Montpellier, in the French part of Switzerland, and we went to Zurich. He gave a lecture. I had the opportunity of translating for him rather poorly. I'll never forget this. On my deathbed, I won't forget this one. Uh, it's only that does, this is my excuse. It's only speaks rather quickly and with very high vocabulary. But this, it was fast, but it wasn't high vocabulary. He started his lecture. This is 1979, so a lot of people really didn't know who he was. And this is the first time he'd ever come to the West to teach. So a big public lecture, again, thousands of people in the audience. And he began just by introducing who he was and where he came from. Even now, a lot of people, when they see the bumper sticker... It says, they read it and they say, free Tibet. Free Tibet. And, say, and then people wonder, who's Tibet? And where, where's, he, where's, he, where's he imprisoned? What, what did he do? <laughs> you know? I mean, really, it, instead of, in case you didn't get it, free Tibet, but free Tibet. And so there are people nowadays that don't know where it is. You know? And now 1979, all the more so. And so his holiness, quite, you know, quite understandably, just introduced himself. And what he... <laughs> What he, what he said was, it's, something, it's, it's just a nice little phrase in Tibetan that translates very nicely into English. It's kind of a just charming little phrase. He said, he began, he began his whole lecture. <laughs> 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 Father, forgive me, I know not know what I do. <laughs> he began his lecture by, by, by act, what he actually said was, uh, I didn't just fall out of the sky. We all know what that means. I didn't come out from nowhere. I, just, I didn't fall out of the sky. Well... I didn't quite get it. Because <laughs> the word num means sky, and then numdu means airplane. 
<laughs> so I was introducing the Dalai Lama, speaking for him, and he said, I didn't just fall out of an airplane. <laughs> for all those in the audience that, in fact, thought he had fallen out of an airplane, he was setting them straight. No, I, I, I didn't fall out of an airplane. <laughs> So I hope the karma that burns off quickly before I die. Okay. So there it is. But, oh, but so I was mentioning that was in Switzerland. And then we went off to Greece. And uh, we stayed in a private home. He, again, he was not so... He stayed in a private home. And so there was this small entourage, four or five people. And then I was part of that entourage for a very short time as his interpreter. And we were there for a couple of days. He gave a big lecture, but a couple of days, two or, th two or, th two or three nights. And so I was in the same home with him all the time. You know? And uh, my experience was, I was just happy all the time. I just never had a moment that I wasn't just happy, just being in that field. You know? That was my experience. That's the longest I've really been with him in close proximity. Uh, so there it is. So such beings have that. They create a field around them. Very true. So it's, this is not simply to adulate or to you know, idolize one individual. He doesn't do that. Uh, I hope I've not done that. I'm speaking praise of a person who's very praiseworthy. But the point, whole point of it all, of course, is not to simply tremendously admire another person and then highlight how different that person is from us, but rather to follow what he says and say, hey, practice, this is what happens. You become then a refuge for other people. Develop bodhicitta, you become a refuge for everybody. So this calms all beings. When you're through the cultivation of the two bodhicittas for a lifetime, and you're doing it continuously, it calms all beings, it removes dissension, it brings happiness to everyone. Well, that's actually true. And it is especially pertinent during this era of five degenerations, of adverse conditions, so external adversity, evil dispositions, you know, there's a lot of evil in the world, decreased uh, lifespan, short life, powerful mental afflictions, and false views, of which then, of course, we have tremendous proliferation uh, especially over the last century or so. And so this is especially pertinent when there are so many sp obstacles to spiritual practice. And without a practice such as this, there's no dogmatism or elitism or anything like that, without a practice such as this, not just this one, but such as this, where we really learn to transform. And you find that, you find such teaching Christianity, you find them in Judaism and so forth and so on. But if you don't have a practice such as this, no other practice will lead to success. I think it's one again, simply literal. It's, it's a blunt truth, but I think it is literally true. That if you have fair weather practice, that you can practice only when things are going really nice and everything's fine, well, the practice is going to be on again, off again, indefinitely. Because you're always, always saying, oh, the practice went up and it down. I had a really good day, but then something bad, bad happened and so forth. So this is obvious now. And then here's an interesting point, and I've heard it many times, and it's relevant especially for us now. And that is, and, but this is from centuries ago. During this period... Uh, during the time of five degenerations. There have been many degenerate times in the history of Tibetan Buddhism, and Buddhism at large, the last, last century, was the worst. But during this period, when Dharma is endangered, never so, never so more true than now, uh, practicing during such a period brings greater merit than practicing in a Buddha field or pure land for an eon. So relate everything you do to this practice, integrating your mind with Dharma. I've heard this many times. I'm... So there it is. Um, that w if one is practicing Dharma in a time when it's just flourishing, I mean, it's just practitioners, fine teachers, 
realize yogis and so forth and so on, and you join the crowd, that's very virtuous. It's very good. Very good. Um, your contribution may not be all that big impact because there's just so much goodness happening around you, but it's still very good. Whereas when the Dharma has received a mortal blow, some people are even thinking, you know, maybe it's going to be just now downhill from now on, which many people think. Um, in such times when Dharma, the vitality of Dharma is really imperiled, uh, and there are not many good teachers, not many good practitioners, conducive environments for such practice, if one rises to that challenge and really practices with great authenticity, integrity, deep dedication to practice, shares the practice with other people, which all of you are welcome to do. You, know, you don't have to think, oh, how many years do I have to study before I can share Dharma? If people approach you and they'd really like to learn from you, by all means, it, you know, it's false modesty. Oh, no, I don't know anything. You share what you can. It's good. So, but it's all the more, all the more beneficial. Great merit, great merit in teaching Dharma, practicing Dharma, doing one's best to gain realization. When Dharma is really on the ropes, they say in boxing, you know, when you're almost knocked out, help in that occasion. The analogy given is if you give um, $1,000 to a very wealthy person, you know, a very good and wealthy person, uh, that's nice, good. A person probably can, everybody can use the $1,000 for something. Um, whereas if you give that same $1,000 to a person who's mortally ill or impoverished, you know, really poverty-stricken, then it's much more meaningful, has much bigger impact. So there it is. It's a true statement. It should be encouraging for us in this era, which is so obvious. A final quote from Dingo Kenzerimache, and that is, in his own commentary, his commentary to this text, he says, there exist many teachings, profound and vast, such as Mahamudra and Dzogchen. But our capacity is small. We are without perseverance and lack sufficient respect and devotion to be freed from through teachings such as these. He's not saying this generically, but he said, you know, if the shoe fits. Nevertheless, if we practice this mind training, seven-point mind training, we will experience great benefits. It is an extraordinary teaching, the very essence of the Bodhisattva teachings, and has been praised again and again. Therefore, let us practice it without distraction. And that's the conclusion of the teaching, but in accordance, this is going to take like 30 seconds. Um, but it's love to, it's good not to close the door or close the book on the teaching. Okay, been there, done that, put it up in the library, and now what's the next teaching? You know, and so I'm going to do something very traditional that's very short. Uh, the first line, I was going to check, but I said, no, I've already memorized it. Um, the first aphorism in the whole text in Tibetan, first, train in the preliminaries. That was the first one. Now, what does that mean? It means re reflecting upon the significance, the meaning, the rarity of enjoying a precious human life with all the opportunity of leisure and opportunity. Reflecting deeply on the meaning of that. Reflecting on the reality of impermanence and one's own mortality. Reflecting upon the nature of suffering. Reflecting upon the nature of cause and effect, of actions and their consequences. So reflecting deeply upon those to bring about an authentic motivation that as one has always been looking for happiness, now one looks for happiness in the right places to find genuine happiness. And so we've just begun the teaching, and that's where we'll pause. Okay? So the book is open. Dot, dot, dot. 
rather than closed and putting it away. We have a few minutes, and I'd like to share some really good news. This is for everyone here, and also very consciously for everyone who's listening now or later on. I guess it's all later on, because this is not live cast, but listening by way of the podcast. Two really good pieces of news. And one of these is that um, I was leading a, uh, it's not good news, but it's just background. Uh, I was leading a retreat, a week-long retreat, at a marvelous retreat center on what's called the Holy Isle off the west coast of Scotland. Uh, that's owned by Sami Ling, a wonderful lama who runs it, named Lama Ishi. I got to know him. Wonderful being, fine monk, great, excellent meditator. And so, but w- when I was going out there this past summer, we stayed in the, the larger island, just there's the Holy Island, which is only like one by two square miles, one by, one by two miles. But right adjacent, it, just a little ways across the water, is a larger island, about 25, 25 miles long, called the Isle of Aran. And this is just about an hour's ferry ride from the west coast of Scotland. So you can fly to Glasgow. 45 minutes by train, you're on the coast, take a one-hour ferry, and you're on the Isle of Aran. And when I was there this past summer, my host, Elizabeth West, who had organized the retreat that I was leading, um, we, we were informed as we were sitting at a bed and breakfast of a guest house that was for sale. And it was right there in this incredibly charming village called Lamlash. Lamlash, a little incredibly charming little Scottish village. And it looks right out on the Holy Isle. It's right in front of you. And the Holy Isle is so-called because of a saint back in, I think it was the 5th century of the Common Era, named Saint Molasha. And he was Shantideva. I mean, I'm, I can't say that literally, but he was a Shantideva kind of yogi, or a Saint Francis of Assisi. Of course, he was Christian, but before Saint, saint Francis. And he was really a saint. He was a miracle worker. And he lived in a cave in Scotland, which is not so bunny in the winter unless you really like wet, cold, and dark. And he lived in this cave for years and years, truly a holy man, by any standard, a true holy man. And he blessed the whole land. That's why it's still called, 1,500 years later, the Holy Isle. And this Lamlash is named after him, St. Molasha. And so we looked at this guest house. It has 38 rooms. It has an occupancy of 52 people, I think. It's in good shape. It has about one hectare, about two and a half acres. And it used to be a guest house for hikers, and then there were just fewer and fewer hikers. And it's being sold right now. There is a bid on it. If that bid carries through, then it's off the table. But there's a very good chance that it will be for sale. And what the big news is, uh, it looks like the people there could actually acquire it for a contemplative observatory and a mind center. And it could be up and running quite soon. And it is gorgeous. It's so charming. It's so sweet. Uh, and And then you all know, anybody living in the European Union it's about 500 million people. You can stay anywhere in the European Union you like for as long as you like. Right? You don't have to worry about visa issues. So if you wish, pray that that comes through because it's almost it's so close. The money is there to actually purchase it. It could really happen soon. And then all Europeans, other people can come for six months or whatever, you know, visa and then you have to leave, whatever. But Europeans, this could be the place. You know? They have multiple teachers coming in, Long-term retreats, would people like to go for a six-month retreat, one year, five year, lifelong, uh, all kinds of opportunities. So really a cause of rejoicing. So if you wish, pray. Uh, but it looks like it's a, a ripe fruit about to drop. And then all it needs is, if they get it, please come. You know, take advantage of it, for heaven's sakes. Um, so that's one really good piece of news. And so I'm just delighted with that. I will come, th- come there on a regular basis. Not quite ready to move to Scotland, as much as I love Scotland. But I certainly would, if this happens, I'll certainly come there on a regular basis. Um, so, there's that. 
and the, and the price is just remarkably low. It's, 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 seven, it's 450,000 pounds for 38 rooms, and they're in good shape. And 25 rooms in the back, all set up for yogis, long-term yogis. So, um, and it's just beautiful, just beautiful. And it's not that cold either. It has the Gulf Stream, so the winters are not brutal. They're wet and cold, but that's what you have heating for, and it has central heating. So there it is. I think it's just marvelously good news. Anybody listening here or by way of podcast who would like to learn more, I just made sure that it was very Googleable, and it is. Uh, the thing to Google is the cont uh, Contemplative Consciousness Network. Contemplative Consciousness Network. I just checked it out. It's there in spades. It has all kinds of information as well as contact information. So if you'd like to learn more, uh, contribute in any way or simply come. You know, If it is acquired, then that's the place to go. And then the other one, we have just a few minutes, everything going right on schedule here. Uh, you may recall about six years ago, we held the Shamatha Project. And a great deal of planning went into that, with scientifically and in so many different ways. And I was involved in every, I, and I conceived of the idea, and then I was involved in all of the planning stages with this wonderful group of scientists, primarily at the University of California in Davis, which is right in the heart of California, near Sacramento. Uh, they were just a, a joy to work with, all of them without exception. And the science is absolutely first rate, and they keep on coming out with one excellent paper after another. They still have terabytes of data to, anal to analyze. But the point here is uh, one of the things that was enormously important for this, as you now all know, was if we were going to hold a, uh, do scientific research on what turned out to be two three-month retreats with thir roughly 35 people in each group, the second group being the control group for the first. So I won't explain that, but it was very, very good science. Uh, so we have 70 people, and we want to put them up for three months. Uh, if you don't have a conducive environment, then everything's shot. You know it's not going to work out well. So I think we began looking for the, a suitable environment that we could take over for two times three months. And of course, I, li I was living at Santa Barbara. I would love to have had that in, near my hometown. So we looked everywhere in the Santa Barbara area. Nothing showed up. Just nothing worked out. And then we looked far, further afield, about 1,000 miles away to Shambhala Mountain Center up in the Colorado Rockies. And we found a, a lodge that was perfect for our size. Their rates were very reasonable. They were very supportive. We held it there uh, six years ago, one in the uh, late winter. The other one must have been late fall, I think it was, to give them the prime time to the, for, for them running their really profit-making activities because they need to support the place. But they gave us very good rates. And it turned out to be really wonderful. It was an excellent place to hold it. But we did check out a lot, of our, a lot of places in the Santa Barbara area. We came up with nothing. Over the last three or four years, am I wishing to have something like what we have here in Tanyapura, have something like that in my hometown? Because I have a center there. I've been teaching there for 16 years, um, family there, uh, and so forth. And it's a beautiful environment. So I really have longed for some years now if we could have a mind center and a contemplative observatory in Santa Barbara with this beautiful climate. It's clean. It's clear. So many perks, so many advantages. Some, a number of you have been there, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but we looked and we looked and we looked, and it's very hard. Number one, it's expensive, but number two, uh, there's just almost no land available and no land with a zoning to allow you to build something like that. You just, you can't get it. So you have to really look for something that's already of that sort, but then it has to be suitable for what you want. The long and short of it is we kept on looking, looking, looking. We found two properties, we, but, and when we found them, we didn't have the money to purchase them. It looks like they're both slipping through our fingers. One's already been purchased. So it was kind of getting close to maybe this isn't going to happen. And maybe I can go into semi-retirement and spend six months a year just meditating. If, if, if you know, reality isn't coming forth, 
then I don't need to keep on, you know, take reality by the neck and say, hey, you, I want to help. If it's not happening, it's not happening. Uh, so, frankly, I was pretty much giving up hope that we could have anything there because I've lived there for 16 years and I know how difficult it is. And we looked on and off for eight years. Since I've been here, an absolutely ideal property has come up. Absolutely better than anything we ever saw before. Uh, and we're going to know within about six weeks whether it will be for sale. Chances are it will be. And it will be perfect. It's in the Santa Barbara area. And it could accommodate a contemplative observatory and a mind center. We could be holding online courses there, interdisciplinary study of consciousness, courses in Buddhism that are thoroughly integrating theory and practice. Not just theory, 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 or just practice, but full integration. We could be holding eight-week retreats. We could be holding the Cultivating Emotional Balance teacher training, weekend retreats, lectures. And I really want to see other teachers coming in, you know, so we to get multiple perspectives. Well, we've already had, the Santa Barbara Institute has already hosted a nice array of both Western scientists as well as Buddhist teachers. We had Christian and so forth. Um, we found the property. And we're going to know quite soon whether it will be available. And if it is, then we're just going to put all of our eggs in that basket because it's the perfect property. The one we've been looking for for eight years, it's now right there. You know. And so if that happens, uh, if that is, it becomes available, then my sense is probably, my sense is probably it's either that or nothing. And it is just magnificent. Uh, I can't say anything more about it right now because we have to let it unfold of its own, of its own accord. But if anybody here is interested, anybody listening to podcasts is interested, just uh, Google Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies. We can't divulge uh, specifics on it right now, but we will be able to soon. It might not come for sale, in which case, okay, I won't give up, but this really is perfect. And if it does become available, we can't just kind of drag our heels and say, well, maybe we'll get to it in five years. or you know, We'll get around to it when it gets convenient. It's kind of like if it becomes available... We need to hit the, you know, the, the hit, need to hit the road immediately and get it going. And I think it would be very, very beneficial. I asked one of my lamas, uh, a woman lama, Sakya, Sakya Damala. I asked her, uh, because she is a very profound being, with tremendous intuition, tremendous purity. And I asked her to look into it with her. And she said she would check her dreams and in her prayers. And she looked into it and said, well, there will be challenges in acquiring it, but if you do acquire it, it'll be very good. And several years back, uh, two, only maybe two or three years back, I wrote to Gyatsharamuchi, or I contacted, I spoke with him, because I, I had had this idea, maybe, wouldn't it be wonderful in this beautiful environment, so clean, uh, and easy access, and so many, so many good things about the environment. I asked him, would it be beneficial to create a long-term retreat center here in the Santa Barbara area? Because if he said no, I said, okay, no problem. That's fine. Not something I'm fixated on. And he said, write to his holiness. Okay. And I did. And then the word came back, very good idea. Go for it. So, we have his holiness's blessing, Damala's encouragement. The perfect property is, seems right there on the horizon. So, and moreover, if that happens and we acquire it, turn it into a mind center, contemplative observatory, and more. Um, a, a lot of blessing can flow from that place. Then that's where I would plan to spend about nine months a year. Indefinitely. And be able to give ongoing guidance. It's been my joy, my privilege, my delight 
be sharing whatever I can with you for the last eight weeks, be in one place where I can do that continually. Six months, a year, five years, ten years. And then also offer instruction. That's not just eight weeks, but offer this kind of instruction, but over the long term. Uh, and really try to help people in a much deeper way than I can when I'm just giving week-long retreats and weekend and so forth and so on. So that's the news. So for that, anybody who's interested, if you know of anybody who might be able to support it, because we'll need a fair amount of money in a relatively short time. Um, if you know of anybody who can contribute, you can contribute, or you would like, or just love to give moral support or like to know more about it. The Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies is a place that will have more information coming out soon. But you can see it has really a quality of blessing to it in my, in my, in my, my impression. My impression. Lasso. I think that's enough for now. Let's enjoy a nice raucous dinner. I'll see you very soon. <laughs>